I think you need mindset before skill set. Okay. So you gotta start with mindset. But you can't learn anything until you're willing to be wrong about something. Right. So that takes a certain amount of resilience and adaptability. So you can't learn anything new if you already know it. So if you're, if you're just coming forward with the answers, you're not answering the right questions. So it's, it's a, we've talked about how do you create learning in an organization. I think the first thing you do is it's a cultural shift. If you focus on culture and capacity in your organization, the brand products and services will work themselves out. They'll just be a natural exhaust. If you're chasing the brand and product, you're chasing the exhaust rather than the manager. Uh, hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to a, a very special edition uh, of today's show. Uh, I'm here with the wonderful Heather McGowan. Heather, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, it's a beautiful day in Chicago. It is. Um, can't really believe it's been three years mm -hmm. since I... Well, three years, yeah. Three years since I first sent you that cold email. Mm -hmm. uh, for everyone's context at home, um, I sent Heather a cold email after reading that piece you did in Ink, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think was the 6th of July, 2015. Uh, Heather famously responded in 17 minutes. I'm sorry, it was slow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think the rest has been kind of history. Yeah. Um, and today's a very special day for us because uh, it's actually the first time we're meeting in person. Yeah. We just uh, had a lovely lunch. We had a lovely lunch. It's great to be, great to be with you. And uh, really happy to have you on the show. You know, I think it's been amazing to see, you know, your star just rise over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm very excited to kind of get into, you know, what's new with you today. Um, I think we'll focus on a couple of things. Okay. Future of higher ed, future of work, immigration, learning, creativity, mm -hmm. some of the new stuff that you're working on. Future of identity. Future of identity. Mm -hmm. And I'd really like to, to just see how this rolls, but really would love to kind of begin by maybe, you know, go back a few years. Mm -hmm. And just kind of asking you, you know, where, where did this all begin? Uh, this thing that you are quote unquote doing now? Uh, like everybody, I got to make a living. Yep. So um, I just wake up every day and think about um, what I'm going to learn and who's going to pay for that learning. That's honestly what I do, is I sort of think about um, what it is I'm interested in. And by my process of, of investigating whatever that thing is, mm -hmm. Who wants to buy the exhaust? And right now the exhaust is talks. Previously the talks been the exhaust has been consulting. Okay. Um, but how I got here is I had worked in industry for 10-15 years, undergrad graduate degree, undergrad before I started graduate degree, seven or so years into it. Um, accidentally worked in higher ed for about a decade, and I didn't go into higher ed as a faculty member. I went into the president's office, which is very unusual. So my first, my second job in higher ed was working directly for a president to build a new college uh, focused on innovation. And here's a secret: I never had never taught a course before. <laughs> <laughs> didn't tell them that at the time. <laughs> left that one off. Left that, that one off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and then I worked at another university, and along the way, I had looked at what was happening in, with my corporate clients in terms of how were they were looking for talent, how they were nurturing talent or not, and um, what challenges they were facing in terms of the products they were getting out of higher ed, the products they were getting out of other companies, and then um, the process of higher ed, which is really just a codified transfer of, at this point, outdated skills. And I thought, this is bonkers. The world is changing so fast. Neither one of these camps have a handle on it. Uh, I'm going to take a stab at trying to explain the world as I see it now that I've sat in all these different seats. Mm -hmm. 
And I wrote a blog, and my friend Ellen Darisa, thank you, Ellen, because you're the one who had the vision, (laughs) said, this is way too long as a blog. Break it into four parts and make it a serial. You know, say part one of, you know, whatever. The first part I wrote went, you know, a couple hundred people read it, mostly friends of mine who said, "Uh, interesting. Second part I I wrote, um, and this was on LinkedIn, um, hit 60,000 people in the first 24 hours, and now it's uh, probably at 100 and something. What year is this? This is 2014, 15, somewhere around there. So this is still on Pulse. Yeah, when Pulse was around. And... um, I got up one morning and looked at my uh, phone, and it was a message from Annalie Killian. Thank you, Annalie. <laughs> yeah. Giving a shout out to all, all yeah, my buddies who it. read it and said, I've been searching the world for somebody who can explain the future of work. I run this uh, conference in Australia. I'd like you to come speak. And I thought, wow. All right, I'm going. Pretty damn cool, right? Yeah. And then from there, I flew all the way to Australia in order to meet Chris Shipley, who yep. you and I both know. Uh-huh. Uh, Thanks, Chris. Chris. <laughs> Hi to Chris. And Chris and I started collaborating. Um, and then along the way, I just keep meeting fantastic people like yourself who reach out to me and say, hey, I read something you wrote, or I will reach out to them and say, hey, you don't know me, but I'm a fan of yours. Right. I did that today with somebody. And you never know. You never know where these conversations or these relationships are going to go. But from each one of them, I am try to give more than I get, but probably don't do a good job of doing that. Um, and I try to learn as much as I can. That's awesome. So... One of the things I love most about your work, and there's a lot, um, is I really do think that you're not only just looking uh, at problems differently, but I think you're connecting dots that no one else connects. Um, and I think that's such a valuable skill. And I, what I want to kind of understand and maybe begin this conversation with is, why are you able to do that so well? Well, I think that um, if you grow up... Um, where you've got a lot of boundaries. Mm-hmm. And my parents were, Sandy and Bob, thanks, <laughs> uh, allowed me to push outside the boundaries of almost everything I tried to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when my uh, my undergraduate degree from Rhode Island School of Design is in industrial design, industrial design isn't learning to do a thing. It isn't learning to do a discipline where you just repeat something that was downloaded into you. It's learning a skill to pay attention to a lot of stuff around you, diverge and converge, to try to kind of find out if you're asking the right question. So whereas every other discipline sort of teaches you how to answer questions, this one teaches you how to ask questions. So that sort of, I was just, I was so happy when I found that field for me to work in. And I just kept that approach, even when I went on to get my MBA, when they were trying to zero you in on the right answer, I was always opening up the frame and saying, let's diverge and ask, see if we're asking the right question. Mm -hmm. Um, That's sort of been my view of the world. Um, and I've fortunately been able to find work situations or situations that compensate me that allow me to do that. So whenever I'm in an organization where I get sort of pushed into an operational role, it's deadly for everybody because that's going to start pushing me into processing things that doesn't allow me to continue to diverge, which I think is an important part of my process. Got it. And as you think about um, the, the market that we're in right now, um, specifically from an IRA perspective, I think... We're at a very interesting time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the one hand, we have these very expensive, well-curated, designed, kind of tr- traditional delivery models, right, mm-hmm. in the form of four-year degrees mm-hmm. um, from top-tier schools. Mm-hmm. You know, my own experience, I think, was very you know, similar to that. Yeah. And then on the other side, you have progression of kind of online education, of kind of alternatives to technical training. Mm-hmm. 
Why do you think there is such divergence today in the way that education has been delivered and, and why do you think that the market is kind of acting in the way that it is? Um, I think we're in the liminal space between the third industrial revolution and the fourth industrial revolution. So in the third industrial revolution, human relationship to tools was you had to learn the tool in order to use it. Mm -hmm. And it was all about scalable efficiency, as John Eagle says. Now we're moving into the fourth industrial revolution, which is about scalable learning. And the tool becomes something you learn with and from. Very different model. In the third industrial revolution, the codify and transfer model worked. So we massified higher ed between 1960 and 1990. We doubled the number of higher ed institutions. We needed a deployable workforce. We couldn't download and transfer skills fast enough into people. Now we're having students graduate with skills that are relevant and debt, debt that's going to last 30 years. So out of that, in the proliferation of technology platforms, people just thought, oh, I can take the same thing and make it a cheaper delivery model. Mm -hmm. And the universities all kind of jumped towards that. Um, I think we're not seeing um, the end state. We're very much like, a, I think about like an Escher, the fish, sky to water, so yeah. the fish turning into the bird. Right. We're in that sort of ugly period between the fish and the bird. Right. We're leaving the water behind. We're not quite in the air yet. So I think we need a lot of these experiments to sort of figure out where these different modes fit in an organization. But as we were just discussing at lunch, I think that work is learning and that products and services and business models are just evidence of increasing your capacity. So every organization's got to focus on learning. So rather than getting someone out of the learning bucket and into the work bucket, you've got to figure out how learning fits alongside work. And we're going to need people to go through some degree programs. Uh, we're going to need people to take some online courses. Work is essentially experimental learning. We're going to have to figure out how to recognize it while it's happening. So all the things that are happening out there are all experiments to help us figure out what the right pieces are we're going to need. Right. And uh, let's talk about the, the top two universities for a second, because I'm sure a lot of listeners are either recently graduated from places like that or, or in, are in the right. process of doing that. Are top two universities safe? I mean, what do you see for their future? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are safe because they have this moat called endowment. <laughs> yeah, big private endowments, right? Right. And, Keep the lights on. Right. And they also are a bit of a sorting process. So they sort the best and brightest, connect them to each other, and um, there are some theories that what you learn at those top-tier universities may not matter as much as the relationship you make and the lifelong learning that you have with your peer groups. Right. Peer learning is really important. Um, I don't think they're going to go away. I think it's the big band of small privates right. that depend on tuition revenue who haven't right. diversified their model and who are still codifying and transferring. Those guys are really going to come under fire and we're going to see a collapse in those. But we'll see new models emerge. But I think to answer your question, the top tier ones, I think there'll still be equity in your degree, students right. out there. Um, pay attention to your network. If you think it's just your grade in your classes, you're missing the entire point right. of being there. Develop relationships with your professors. Right. Grow your network. Because that's what you're buying into. You're buying into a network. I'm, I'm telling you with you, that was the most valuable thing that I got from Notre Dame. Yeah. You know, it helped me. It provided context, right, yeah. for what I was going to. It's where everybody went to vouch for me. And ultimately, I can't remember most of what I learned yeah. in my four years there, yeah. right? But the relationships that I had, they're things I have forever. Yeah, when I graduated from RISD, which was in 1993, I think I inherently understood this, even though no one explained it to me. Mm -hmm. So I went to the career service office and I said, I don't want to look at any job postings because I think they're probably not going to work. Yeah. What I want to know is... Who graduated in my major 
in in uh, Boston and New York. I think I just picked those two areas, but mostly Boston because that's where I was living at the time. They had to have graduated more than five years ago, but no more than fifteen years ago. Because if they've got to be, if they graduated more than five years ago, they may be in a position to make a decision. If they've graduated more than fifteen years ago, they're never going to want to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I made a list. Fantastic. And I went to see him. So free LinkedIn. Free internet. There was no email. Now it's cold call. Right, love it. And Old I went school. to one meeting, and I, this person looked across the table at me, and she said. I've heard about you. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I had met with so many of them, they all started talking about That's me, and that was terrific. how I got my first job. That's amazing. Yeah. So you just recreated LinkedIn for yourself? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. Yeah, and so I guess, as, as we think about um, the delivery model for a second, um, what, what's the power in, in the online model? Like, what do you, what do you see there? Are, there? are there elements of it that you think really could be kind of a long-term solution to some of the things you're talking about? Well, the access to flows of information, which is not limited to the online model, yeah. because I think the online model is just the modern textbook. Right. We, we forget when the textbook came out, somebody codified a, a unit of learning, right. printed it in something for mass distribution, right. when before that just existed in the in the heads of certain individuals. Yeah. So it ex- massively extended the reach of learning, and I think online does the same thing. But I think we're social beings, so I think that just sort of sitting in a room and consuming online content We'll get you so far, but you need to socialize and contextualize it and talk to about other people about it. So I think it's going to continue to be a force, right. but I think that we've got to figure out how to bring the social piece into it. So a company that I mentioned at lunch that yep. I mentioned here, I just listened to a fascinating podcast with the, with the CEO of 2U, um, Chip Horsick, um, on, the, on the Recode podcast. And you know, we talked about at lunch the, the value of increasing you know the revenue streams to a university without deploying physical capital but i think you had a fascinating point which was is that really preparing the next generation yeah. for what they need to be prepared for yeah right you talk about the learning mindset yeah you know agility human skills so if you could if you could build a, a university curriculum yeah it, what would it look like well, I, to use the online model and yep. look at some of the things that uh, we were talking about at lunch, and I'll recreate it because not everybody here was at yeah, yeah, lunch with yeah. us, is that a lot of people have taken the um, online model and they've just taken the, the classroom content and just yep. made it available online, which is really a change in delivery mechanism, not much else. Yep. Um, one of the things I'm going to shout out to Donna uh, at the Fourth Industrial Revolution.org. Donna is building the Future Skills Academy that's saying you need to learn these critical, uniquely human, non-technical skills in an online environment, which means it scales to everybody who wants to learn them. Um, my piece of it, to be filmed sometime soon, is on the transdisciplinary mindset. So it goes through things like what's the design mindset, um, what is social-emotional intelligence, what is virtual collaboration, what does it mean to you? So all of those sort of skills, I think that's an important baseline that's completely missing. Um, that I would make as a, as a strong foundation. Got it. And as you, you've worked inside and out of universities, mm-hmm. you know, for, for your whole career, do you see any of the, the universities today moving towards that reality? No. Universities are largely reactionary. So and until a big employer says, I need this, right. they don't tend to build it. Because they're not going to build for a market that they're not sure is there. They're so risk-averse. They're so change-averse. You've got so many um, just fixed costs. You know, faculty are a fixed cost. Buildings are a fixed cost. Yeah. They have to have a certain amount of throughput to feed that. Mm-hmm. And then they look at, you know, what else can I do around this? 
Right. So is, is the responsibility at the organizational level then to, to develop that market? Um, I think that it's going to be um, inevitable soon that we're going to realize that companies exist of, I think, three things. So you've got capital, mm-hmm. you've got infrastructure, technology, and you've got talent. And if you look back over the last 100 years, 100 years ago, the biggest companies by market cap in the U.S. were all oil, gas, and steel. Yep. Meat production, I think, was one of them. It's all about extracting value from natural assets. We didn't have the financial infrastructure in place then, so access to capital was what made you win. Right. 50 years ago, it was all about scalable production of human-made assets, access to technology, because technology didn't proliferate the way it does today. Right. Capital infrastructure was in place. Talent was third. It was really just... Uh, individuals trained with predetermined skills. Now, whoever learns fastest wins. So talent, because as soon as technology comes out, it's ubiquitous. Everyone has access to capital. The differentiator is talent. Right now, we're only seeing that in the digital companies that have figured it out. Once that takes place across all of our economy, once we digitize more of the economy and human talent becomes the most important thing, I think we'll see a whole lot more of these things kind of pop up. Right. And as you think about... um, as you think about learning and, and just why it's so important for uh, some of the things that you've mentioned, is, is learning really the resilience and the agility that you talk, talk so much about? Or do you, do you see that separate and maybe more towards mindset? I think you need mindset before skill set. Okay. So you've got to start with mindset. But you can't learn anything until you're willing to be wrong about something. Got it. So that takes a certain amount of resilience and adaptability. So you can't learn anything new if you already know it. So if you're, if you're just coming forward with the answers, you're not asking the right questions. So it's, it's a, we've talked about how do you create learning in an organization. I think the first thing you do is it's a cultural shift. If you focus on culture and capacity in your organization, right. the brand products and services will work themselves out. They'll just be a natural exhaust. Right. If you're chasing the brand and product, you're chasing the exhaust rather than the engine. Right. Can you talk about lifelong learning for a second? Sure. Um, I, I think some of the topics we covered at lunch for, for those listeners at home were around how can the university model actually pivot to start actually servicing somebody outside of the ages of 18 to 22 and mm-hmm. let's call it, you know, 25 to 35 yeah. for, you know, MBA programs. As we look at, you know, programs that are developing around the 45 to 60 year old range, I get very excited mm-hmm. um, because I think what we're realizing is that to go 40, 50 years without any other formal education is a hell of a long time. Right. And especially when the world is changing out there, right? It's period of introspection, learning, right. kids peer relationships, right? Intergenerational re- reaction, right. interaction right. could be super powerful. So what I'm interested is, do you see as the world begins, and yeah, I think you're doing a great job of helping do this to understand the value of lifelong learning. Do you see that higher education model actually becoming more of a an a pit stop along the way, as opposed to just this four years supercharge you get? And nothing else? Yeah, I think the academies that are going to survive and, and, and flourish are going to be ones who start thinking themselves more like a gym. It's something you belong to. You may go to a boot camp. You may go, you know, once a month. You may go every two years. But that you visit and keep your mind sharp the same way you keep your body sharp. Because if you look at our workforce today, median age in the workforce in the U.S. is in the 40s. The median age and all those digital companies I was talking about, the top five ones right now, the Apples, the Amazons, Googles, et cetera, 28 to 31. So we've got, we've only digitized like 18, 20% of our economy. When we start digitizing the whole economy, there's a huge portion of the workforce 
that came out of that factory pipeline. Yeah. What do you want to be when you grow up? What's your major? Your yeah. first job? You get on that escalator. When they get thrown off that escalator, which we were talking about, it's yeah. a horrible identity crisis for them to, to find their way back. Yeah. And it's not simply let's uh, download some new skills into them, because you have to start by developing the right mindset in them. Right. It's a tremendous opportunity to be coming. Right. And so one program I'd love to, to shout out is, is the one I talked yeah. to you about, I know Shanae, that, that uh, a good friend of mine, Tom Shirai, is running. And, and the whole idea is let's bring back, you know, world-class executives mm-hmm. in all fields, technology, politics, education, business, and let's reintegrate them into the university ecosystem mm-hmm. um, and have them kind of figure out who they want to be for the, the last 25, 30 years of their life mm-hmm. and also what they might want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's particularly powerful because to your earlier point about universities being about relationships, yep. one of my biggest tensions was being stuck in South Bend, Indiana and not. Right. being exposed to a ton of alumni outside of football weekends, right. I feel like a model like this could really maybe change that if it's scaled. Um, yeah. I don't know what your perspective is. Yeah, it brings wisdom back into the university. It brings a different type of uh, knowledge capital back in the university. The other thing that I think the university does, and I don't know what the environment yeah. South Bend was like, was what is the academy's responsibility to the community that houses it? Yeah. You know, they don't pay taxes. Um, it gives some things back to the university, but there's an entire population, particularly as the world continues to speed up, that's going to need learning. So what is the relationship there? Different generations, different income levels, different abilities. How do you bring that into the university and, and, and lift the entire community up? Right. And right now, if we talk about the graduate market, right. um, I, I think it's under siege. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we we're beginning to see you know, MBA application numbers just fall through the floor. Um, my anecdotal evidence to that would just be conversations I've had with people working in graduate programs, even at some of the top tier universities, just saying that, you know, international students aren't coming to the US anymore, mm-hmm. partly because I don't think they see the ROI, right. uh, the ROI of the degree, but mm-hmm. also the fact that the immigration and work environment is so dangerous that they're not going to recoup their investment. So I think universities are beginning to realize that they may need to pivot. Um, and, I, and, I, and I wonder, are there, are there any in particular right now that, that you see that you think are doing a good job of maybe thinking about this new gym membership model, or is it something that just hasn't really been adopted yet? I haven't seen it be adopted yet, but when I think what happened with the graduate degrees is they, they looked at the data and said, okay, the, the volume of people who could come in in the 18 to 23 year old, the, the birth rates have declined so that that population isn't there. Right. Well, now that we've done this degree inflation thing that everybody needs to have a master's degree, right. we'll just sell them on that and we'll get the population we've already brought through and make them customers again. They're seeing that that's starting to die off. Right. And the, the situation with the immigration in this, in this country just breaks my heart. I mean, this, uh, we need immigration. We need immigration because the diversity of ideas is what grows our country. Yeah. I mean, most jobs are created from companies five years and younger. 40% of the Fortune 500 and two out of every three or something like that internet startups are started by an immigrant or a child of an immigrant. We cut off that blood supply? Mm. What are we doing? Yeah, I think, I mean, case in point, right? Um, mm. it's, it's been a tough environment for me. Yeah. Um, and I think another sad thing is it isn't just the US. You know, I no. think about no, I think it's, you know, London and you, you see we've got our knickers in a twist over there. Yeah. Complete kerfuffle. Um, 
Um, and I, I think talent uh, is looking for a place to go. So I am interested in who, quote unquote, might win out of this. Um, and I, I don't know if anyone really wins, to be honest. Like, I think everybody's worse off. But I think, especially at home, people are looking for places to go. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by the, the UK higher education market in the sense that the ROI hasn't been there for university degrees. I mean, 78% of students never pay back their loans. Average wages the year after college are £23,000 a year. Mm. You know, trying to live in London is almost impossible. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you, do you see a path forward on that front? Do you see any glimpses of hope around people actually beginning to realise what, what immigration and diversity and culture does for an economy? Uh, I hear a lot of people, including myself, talking about it. Right. So the people who get it, you know, the data is there. Immigrants right. make us safer. Immigrants contribute more to the economy than they take out of it. They may take more out of it at the state level, but they put a hell of a lot more at the federal level. Um, they start companies. Yeah. Um, it's, it's incredible that we'd ever kind of cut that off. And I know it's not just a U.S. thing. And I think it's a reaction to work. I think that the globalization has caused wage compression in certain industries. Right. Um, because suddenly there's a human talent con that everybody can tap into. Also, climate change has caused mass migrations around the world. We have the highest percentage of immigrants now in the U.S. than we did after World War I. Right. Um, and there's a reaction to it because there's a belief, and there are certain leaders out there are certainly promulgating this belief that if somebody else wins, you lose. And we don't live in a world of war, zero-sum game. And so I, I don't think somebody coming here, whether it's across the southern border or coming when we're from England, makes my life any less. But for some reason, that's been sold and bought in the U.S. and around the world. Right. Let's talk about identity for a second. Sure. I know this is, is something you're kind of newly working on. Yeah. Um, so. which, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> could you, can you, for all those that went to lunch, which is everybody, yeah. uh, could you kind of talk about how you kind of arrived at, at this idea of identity and why you think that is, is the real crisis at the moment? Yeah, I think it is because... So I give these talks on the future of work, and, and I lead different audiences, and sometimes it's corporations, sometimes it's foundations, sometimes it's higher ed. Right. And I take them through, you know, we're going through this period of accelerated technological change. It's done certain things to certain aspects of the workforce. It's going to do certain things to other aspects of the workforce. This change is coming. And in the last three or four talks I've given, people have come up to me and cried. They've come up to me and said, I felt some of the things you're talking about. I did not know how to describe it. I've had a sense some of these things are coming. Um, I've lost my job. My husband's lost his job. I'm worried about my kid graduating from college. I'm worried about my kid in grammar school. All this just, and then I realized humans are just under this tremendous amount of stress. And then I started looking at it. So I sat down and I made a list. Okay, so this is the world we're, we're in, and, but we're leaving, and this is the world we're entering. And I'm in that list ended up being you know 40 characters long, 40 different lines long, different changes. So. We are still a white majority, but we will be a white minority in our lifetime. We have been a Judeo-Christian society, which is really a Christian norms or the war on Christmas, to not only a plurality of religions, but many more unaffiliated people. 2015, Harvard had its first class where there were more atheists than Christians. It's a huge moment for a country that sees themselves as a Christian organization, Christian country. Mm-hmm. Um, we will, in 2027, which is just nine years away, we will have more walkers and strollers. We have more people over 65 than under 14. Across, you know, gender. So gender was fixed and binary, determined at birth, and that was it. 
for most of the world, at least socially that's how we talked about it. Now it's fluid. Uh, Ruby Rose uh, opened the European American Music Awards by saying, welcome ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between. <laughs> and that was a huge moment because it spoke to so many people who had never been spoken to before. Yeah. Yeah. So this is in, you know, so we're changing in terms of diversity, age, income, um, across every dimension. And then I realized that it came down to really three questions. And one of them was the one that we myopically ask each other. The other two we ask are the ones we ask to ourselves. So what is, who are we? Who are we if we've in our mind, particularly for some people, in our mind in this white, Christian, male-dominated country where um, your, your race and your, uh, your place in the world was established as status, and for some reason, as you, you become a minority instead of a majority, it becomes into question. Uh, where are we as a country? Where, who are we when advertisers still promote 18 to 44-year-olds as their demographic, but that's not most of the people you see walking around in here in the city of Chicago. Yeah. Um, who are we when, um, you know, is it him, her, or they? You know, we're changing our pronouns. Right. This change, some of this change has happened. Uh, we talked about this over lunch. It started, you know, in the 60s, some of it. Some of it started in 2010. So the velocity of that cultural change has been really quick. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that. And politicians have exploited that. Some politicians have really exploited that. Um, the next question is, what do you do? That's the first question we all ask each other. Yeah. Um, and it really is uh, a social signal, what company you're associated with, what level are you at. And it isn't always everybody's intent. In fact, when I talk to people about it, they always say, well, I always ask that, but I have no idea why I ask that because I don't really need to know who you work for. Right. I just don't know how to start asking you about yourself. Right. And then the third question is, where are you from? And where are you from? At one time, we were linear and local and stayed in the same region for multiple generations. Now, we I flew in this morning from uh, Boston. I'll fly to Australia in December. I'm always on planes. I'm always in different places. And I was talking to a friend of mine who consults a lot who says she lives in different time zones in her head. So she's <laughs> like, I'm always thinking, oh, yeah, it's morning here, but it's evening there, and I need to talk to her. So... Where do you spend, if we spend more than half of our time, which we do online looking at our devices or right. living in Facebook or other social media platforms, where are you from is, becomes a completely different thing because what space, time, culture are you connected to? And I think the thing that Estonia is doing with the e-residency is sort right. of like you could pick where you're from right. and declare your residency. So I think those three questions, who are you? What do you do and where are you from are really changing. And those have nothing to do with, they, what do you do it has something to do with technology, but it's really that social change that I don't think anyone's really explained well yet. And I was talking to my friend and mentor, mm -hmm. you know, Tom Friedman about mm -hmm. this, and he said that whoever figures this out is going to be the next president of the United States, whether they exploit, further exploit, right. these insecurities around identity, or they figure out how to lead us through it. And I think that's right. I don't know the question, don't know the answers yet, but I think those are the questions we need to think about. Right, and if you think about identity, right, like so much of that is upheld and is intrinsic to the to the stories we tell one another, mm -hmm. to the stories that we change. Tell we ourselves. Tell ourselves, yep. most importantly. And I think you raise a terrific point, which is if people feel like the identity has been stripped away with them because they've lost a job, right, yep. because they've had to move to a new country. That's a really powerful realization. And so I'm wondering if we have been trained well enough and actually been taught fundamentally to pivot in, in the narrative.
narratives, pivot in the stories we tell ourselves, really begin to really question why are we here? What are we doing? And right. I don't know if we see that in the workplace. I don't know if we see it in education. I think as a society doing a really terrible job at that, and I think you put your put your finger right on it. It's it's like when we started talking uh, way back when I said I want to kill that question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. Because it's absurd. You ask young people when they want to grow up, and half the jobs or a third of the jobs haven't been created, or a third of the jobs, half the jobs may be automated. So you're asking them to start fixing their sights on a future self right. based upon a very incomplete set of information. We ask university students to pick a major before they even step foot on campus. They've exposed to very little stuff in high school, and then they pick a major and they myopically focus you on consuming outdated content in pursuit of that degree, which her job may not even be there. Yeah. Then we ask each other, what do we do? We need to figure out different ways of telling those stories to ourselves mm-hmm. and sharing those stories together because it's really at the core of our identity. And I think we are in the middle of a massive identity crisis. Right. And as soon as you don't feel like your story fits, right, or people don't understand it, I mean, you begin to get despondent. Right. And one of the things we talked about is that the study that came out the last year or so that if you lost your primary relationship and you lost your job, yes, two, so two and a half times as long to recover from the loss of your job, and you often don't fully recover right. because it's the loss of who you are. And if you ask somebody who's lost their job, hey, what do you do? Because that's what you do at a cocktail party, and they say, I'm taking a break right now, or right. I'm finding myself. So they always feel bad, and yeah. then the person who asks the question is backpedaling, and everybody feels bad, and there's nothing wrong with that human being that was the same a week before right. they lost their job, but for somehow right. their values dropped to the to the right. floor, and it's absurd. Because right. we have this mental construct, yeah. and that's what a, a good human is. One of the books that's behind you that I know we're both a fan of is Startup and You. Yeah. Um, and really, I think the genesis of that book, in my mind, was the, top, the article Tom Peters wrote in 1997 about Brand Called You. Yeah. Um, and what I love about both of those pieces of content is it really encourages, I think, as we do, to our to our peers and mentees, yeah. mentors, don't be defined by your job, your right. brand, your portfolio. Think of you as the CEO of Heather McGowan Inc., yeah. Yeah. McGraw Inc. And I think that that mindset can be incredibly helpful to this identity crisis that we're talking about. Right, because it makes you more resilient. It's why you do what you do, and there may be many things that you do, that's yep. increasingly going to be the case. As opposed to that one thing you do. And I, one of the things I ways I describe it is we've had this bestowed identity. I was having dinner with a friend who had lost her job and she had unlimited resources from from work she had value she'd created in the world, uh, a degree from an Ivy League university. Anybody looking at her would be like, She's fantastic. Right. But because she'd lost the job, somebody had taken that bestowed identity away from her and she didn't know how to build it back. So I think we're moving towards a we have to give people the tools to do it, a self-actualized identity. You define it based on your purpose and your passion right. and the superpowers you uncover and continue to build. And then what you do becomes the exhaust. That's the way you apply it and you learn today right. and you become much less attached to it. This builds much more resilience. Right. And it really gives you a, a great deal of freedom, I think. Yeah. yeah. Because now you start to, I'm a big believer in law of attraction. I think case in point is, is my guest. You begin to attract the opportunities actually you want, mm-hmm. not the ones that society, as you said, bestowed upon you. Right. Because of what you might have decided to study in a period of time. Or somebody's opinion of what you studied in one period of time, or an algorithm's opinion of it in some document that gets processed. Right. So I, I did see, I think that's a terrific subject. And we could just maybe move on to 
the role that social media plays mm-hmm. in how people develop their identities. You and I worked on a piece, never published it. We, we should have done that. We were ahead of the game there. Yeah. Um, we really were because it was way before the 2016 election. It was. And, it, yeah. and the piece was called, I think you came up with this, Social Media Can Transform or Destroy Us. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and I just, still think the jury's out on that. I, look, I still think we can publish it. We, yeah. should, we should definitely yeah. do it. But now when we think about the world we live in, it's not just the city of Chicago or River North or London or Shanghai or Boston. It's, it's the online world. Yeah. And that experience is curated by us, mm-hmm. but it is also massively curated by digital platforms, right. uh, which we, I think, are learning can be very good and also very bad. Right. So I, I would like to get your perspective on how you think social media is playing a role in our identities, and why do you think that's a, a good about? I think it depends on how you engage with it and how aware you are of it. So if we both discuss some more trash Facebook, but we're off Facebook or yeah. I'm off Facebook, I'll speak for myself, yeah. I'm off Facebook because I found that, particularly with the 2016 election, that it was just a way to divide us. It was a way to, it was a vehicle for anger right. and it was a vehicle for fighting. Um, it did allow you know you to see photos of people you don't see all that often, but more often than not, it was rage posting about right. one political opinion or another. Um, LinkedIn I see differently. Um, I seek out people who disagree with me right. or people who have different backgrounds or viewpoints from whom I can learn. You and I are different generations. Exactly. You're from London, I'm from the US. We, we have developed this learning relationship, which I value very much. Yeah. I wouldn't have found you otherwise. Yeah, right? wouldn't have caught me in the Boston pub. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, you might have. Yeah, I might have done that. Coffee shop. <laughs> but, I, you know, I've, I've got this network of people all over the world from whom I learn it. And, right. uh, it's, but you have to start with that as your intention. Right. I see people use things like LinkedIn, and I will notice people that I know will suddenly start posting. I'm like, oh, either that person lost their job or they think they're going to lose their job because there'll be a spike in posts for like exactly. three months, you know? Right. But then there are people who are on there all the time, sharing content, asking people what they think about it, engaging in discussions. Um, I think it's a good place, not a good place for answers, it's a good place to, to, to make sure we're asking the right questions of each other. So I think it, it really depends on how you go into it. If you just go into it searching for followers, I think you're going to fail. Right. Um, but if you go into it saying, I want to find somebody who thinks differently than I do, or someone who thinks similarly than I do in another part of the world, and uh, I want to learn from them, then I think you'll be successful. Right. And I think that's the, the value that I love about those platforms. Yes. Yeah. I don't want for a second to think that just because of where I was born or the school I went to or the people I decided to hang out with that I meet everybody that I need to in life, right? Yeah. Case yeah. in point, right? For you sure know, not, yeah. You know, one of my best friends in the world who's got a question for you, you know, in, in a few minutes, you know, is Omar Yogu. I haven't seen that guy in five years. But you talk about that. We talk every Sunday. Yeah. And I think that that is anecdotal evidence of what I think will become a normal. Yeah. In the sense that we realize that we have the world at our disposal right. and we're a few clicks away from engaging with people who we think we can learn from. Yeah, um, I think the thing we need to figure out, particularly, you know, it's happening, we've talked about it's kind of blue, but in the U.S. is we're getting more and more divided. It's right. us versus them. The tribes. Yeah, and I think that if we, that's what was one of the genesis of our, of our article mm-hmm. is how do we use social media to break down those tribes? Because mm-hmm. right now, I mean, the way we find out information about the world, we used to be, Chris agrees his ladder of influence. So there's like all the data in the world. There's a slice you pay attention to. You make your assumptions. Uh, you form opinions. You test that data. And then yeah. that leads back to what information you pay attention to. 
when the world is served with carbon and you run into information, so you may select the newspaper, but you turn the page of the newspaper and there's an article you wouldn't have otherwise seen, mm -hmm. you are confronted with information that you didn't necessarily seek. Now we're living in a world of social media where everything's curated to the last thing you clicked on, to a finer and finer funnel, so you never see anything you don't agree with. And that's incredibly dangerous. Because that's what sells, right? That's what right. companies are paying for. They're paying for hyper-targeting and localization. Right, but that does it does such a disservice to our right. ability to learn and connect exactly. and it pushes us further and further away into camps. Exactly. And that goes against everything we just talked about. Right, right. And that, and that is the tension right now. Right, right, right. And I think it raises really interesting questions about, you know, what is the role of these platforms right. in, in society? Right. Right. Is it to build... You know, fantastic hyperlocal marketing tools that people can leverage for good and bad reasons. Yeah, or political tools, yeah. Right? Or, or is any, it, any kind of influence. Or is it about creating a, a community and global economy that values discourse? Right, right. I think it's very interesting. So it comes back to intent. Right. Can we take a quick break, Heather? Sure. I'm going to check on the camera and see how we're doing. Okay. All right, guys, we're back after, after that short break. The iPhone's still running, so thank God we actually oh, have good. 45 minutes of a podcast. Um, so, Heather, kind of picking back up on that, on that theme, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of you curate communities of people that you learn from. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of young professionals get stuck in this idea of like, what is what is networking? Mm -hmm. uh, what, is it, what does it mean to have a, a book of relationships and people that you can talk about? Sounds like you, I don't want to speak for you here, you think of that construct is, hey, I define the value of my network as almost inverse to the number of people I'm learning from on a day-to-day -day basis. Is that, is that fair to say or do you think about it differently? Um, I think about it as, um, what am I giving to the people on my network? Because I can't expect to, the, the people who I think fail at networking will look at it and say, what can I get from that person? Right. It's a transactional cash out liquidation yeah. view of it all exactly. the time and that's going to fail right. it's going to fail because you don't want you feel like you're used exactly but if i can think like what can i give to that person send to that person think about that person what can I add to that line yeah how can i contribute some way to whatever it is they're trying to do um because at some point in the future um or in the past they've given something to me i'm always trying to pay it forward i'm always trying to figure out how do i add value to them because I think the rest of it will work itself out. I do find some, there are some people, and I just don't engage with them anymore. I would pay it to them, pay it to them, pay it to them, and they were just cashing, cashing, cashing. And I was like, they're not a priority anymore. Right. Um, that's very. That's a very small percentage of them. Has that always been your mindset? Since yeah. The, the, from the very beginning. Yeah. And you think it's standard the test of time? Because I think. Yeah, because back when I did that Rizzi thing, uh -huh. I wasn't going to those people saying, "Can you give me a job? Can you give me a job?" I didn't ask anybody for a job. Right. I said, I value, you know, we both had the same education, which we both value. Um, what's most interesting that you found out of it? Here's where I am with it. Yeah. I, I want, you know, I, I sort of fed their ego by saying, you know, what would you, I, I value your opinion. So I sort of massage your ego a little bit. And then I would check back with them all the time. And I would say, do you know this person? Because he goes, there wasn't any social media at the time. It was right. just sort of like, you might want to know this person because they do something that's similar to that project you're telling me right. you're working on. So always trying to connect and add value to the network, right. you're going to get it back. Pays dividends. Yeah. I want to ask you two of the questions that I know you've outlawed, but I am just interested okay. in what the answers would be um, because I realize for those at home who maybe don't know your stories intimately as I do, how are you describing 
uh, what you do these days. <laughs> well, because I, I love it. I feel like every time I hear a new interview or see you talk, it's a different answer, which I think is to this point of identity that, yeah. yes, your identity was different this time last year. Yeah. If it's not, that's the problem, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So one time I was down at my parents' house and my parents had a cocktail party and my mother said, well, how do I tell these people what you do? And so I was like, well, I was just, like about yeah, so I was like, <laughs> yeah. something to her and she said, well, those guys used to work in whatever it is. Let's go over and have a drink with them and let's try that word out. So we'd like, we would go to different couples trying out different words to see what people understood. That's, That's essentially what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the hospital for a minor surgery like two years ago uh-huh. and the doctor said to me, what do you do? And I said, I work on the future work. And he said, oh, that's okay. A lot of people are employed. <laughs> I said, I didn't say I was working on the feature of my work. Right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. And then I needed a title that would be more enduring. Because one of right. the complaints I got from people is every time I talk to you, you have a different title. They're all made up. So, uh, <laughs> like everybody's right, title, everybody's right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a friend of mine went on some website that said, you know, pick some, one from column A, one from column B, and one from column C. Yeah. And it was like this random title generator. And so now I'm, I'm operating under the umbrella of a future work strategist because the future work will never be here. So I constantly be in the pursuit of it. Love and it, it is overall dot connecting is a strategy. So it fits. And hopefully I'll hang on to that one for a while. Right. So, so does Heather McGowan have a typical day? No, I think if I did, it would be my downfall because Go I think ahead. lack of discipline is my strategic As we discussed. Yeah, because it allows me to start reading something that will make me think of something else. I'll make a phone call with somebody. I will meet with somebody. And then it just allows me to add more stuff to the primordial soup. And then all of a sudden I'll be like, I get it. It's the three questions. Like this identity thing I've been on for six months to a year. Right. And it wasn't until I said, I got I to gotta put it in a form and I'm not even sure I'm there yet. But I think there's something to those three questions. But that the amount of reading and watching and conversations that went into getting the three questions was probably five months of solid work. Right. And do you do you have a do you have a specific information source, suite of information sources that you rely on, or there specific books you read, people you follow? Like is there method to the madness? The, the the network that I'm in, people send me stuff all the time. Right. People say, "Oh, I saw this and I thought of you. I saw this you think I find it interesting." So, which is I, incredibly valuable. Right? Absolutely, yeah. They curate the list for me. Which goes to the value piece. Right, right. So there's certainly that. And then, um, if you've ever seen any of my writing or my my talks, I always use visuals. Right. So I don't write anything until I've made pictures of it because I think unless you've made a picture of it, you don't really understand it. Got it. So it goes to the sort of consumption of huge amounts of information with no discipline going in every direction. Conversations with a lot of people, people sending stuff to me for, for which I'm very grateful. And then sitting down and saying, okay, how do I make this, this incredibly complicated concept into a single picture? Do you have a vision board? Do you write with a map and pencil? Do you paper and pen? It's a mechanical pencil. Okay. And eight and a half by 11 pieces of white paper. And I sketch and erase and sketch and erase, and then I go into PowerPoint. Sometimes I use Illustrator and Photoshop and use it and try to figure out what my colors are that emphasize certain things and yeah. how it's animated to tell the story because right. I'm not thinking about the visual. I'm thinking about how I'm going to walk somebody through it. Right. But it always starts with a paper and mechanical pencil. And I think that's so powerful because, and I think this is something you said previously, but we don't think in quite, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't think in a keyboard. Right. And in fact, that's how we've been communicating as human beings right. since the very beginning. Right. So being able to connect those dots and those ideas, I think, is super powerful. And I guess for us, 
you know, you travel the world. I mean, I don't know how many airline miles you've done. Do you have, have you kept track of the number of talks you've done this year? Do you know that number? I don't know that number. I need to write that down. I would, actually, I wrote it down to try to get to the audience size once. I don't remember what it was because somebody asked me to quantify it. Right. And you think it's maybe upward of 100? 100 talks? I'm not sure it's 100, but then how you divide them because right. I'll go to one location and do multiple right. talks. So um, it's probably five or six a month. Wow. So that's not including interviews and webinars. Right. So you're on the go all the time. Yep. How do you how do you do how do you build out creative time? How do you make sure that you have time for introspection and reflection, and you can actually take in all these ideas? Is and I know we talked about the, the you know you said it was a little discipline, but is there is there a kind of routine you follow for this, or is it, it's just you're taking it as it comes? I'm sort of taking it as it comes. It seems the like I'm in Chicago now for the Cusp conference, which I'm speaking at tomorrow. Right. I have flight from tomorrow afternoon, or no. Yeah, tomorrow afternoon I fly to Detroit and I'm doing the trans conference. And next week I'm doing the Atlantic Future Award Conference. So it's like the, the, the things just come in and then there are big chunks of space between them. A lot of times people will want two or three talks on the same day in different parts of the world. I can't make that work. But when I can, like Chicago, Detroit, or next stage, I can make that work. But I haven't had a talk in six days. So that six days is when I'm in an eddy of creating content, like the, right now I've been working on this identity thing, right. and then I'll go out. If I can try that out, I will. If not, I'll try out other pieces of it, or I'll try it out on an interview, and then when I come up through it, I reflect upon you right. know, what aspects of the talk resonated with people, where right. I lost people, then I'll refine it. Every talk's different. No two talks are the same. Right. And where do you go from for inspiration? Um... I think downtime is really important because okay. I think that one of the problems we have in this country is we're trying to squeeze more and more and more out of people. Yeah, and in the process, people are just processing all the time. They're not reflecting. You can't learn unless you reflect. So sometimes I have to have you know a day where I do five or six things, not five hundred, and I give myself because it's the, the the dots get connected when you give yourself a space to let sure. them make sense. Right. I mean, the reason Tom Friedman called his book Thank You for Being Late was he was meeting someone for coffee and they were late and the time gave him the permission to relax and think and he connected two ideas in his head he'd been meeting to connect. Yeah. So he meant it. Right. I think it's Dolph Sieben's card, right? Yeah. Humans being style when we stop. I mean, you hit the pause button. Yeah. That's incredible. So as, as, as you think about, um, I, I, as you think about the year you've had, yeah. um, all the talks you've done, the multiple trips to Australia, you know, being on Tom's book. I mean, was this was this something you, you grew up wanting to do? Did you ever think you'd be doing this? I mean, and also in terms of how you how you are sharing these ideas with the world, are you seeing you know a greater uptake? And you, you think some of the visions that you're outlining? Um, I think I don't sell. You know, so we were talking about this. Yeah. Like, how do I get talks? People just ask me. I, I don't have any promotional plan. I don't have yeah. any sales. It's just me. I've got you know one speakers bureau is representing me right now on a part time basis, but mostly it's just people email me and I go do a talk. So um, what I have seen is a huge uptick in interest. Suddenly, people are starting to feel the things that I started talking about a few years ago, right. and they're looking for a north star. They're looking for a handrail to the future, and that's where the uptick in talks have come from. Right. So, um, did I ever plan to do this? No, I don't think anybody could have planned to do this. But I'm always open to new ideas, uh, willing and interested in learning. Yeah. And um, 
interested in putting out some new form of value every day. And I can't measure it by impacts because then I would be distracted by the impact. I've right. got to just keep with the inquiry. And that can be a post, a connection, yeah. an idea, a drawing. Yep, friendship too. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah. So Heather, I guess as you think about as you think about inspiration, I'd, I'd love to know who are some of the the people that really inspire you in this life? Well, as communicators, I think Tom's one of the best in the world. So some people who can take incredible amounts of complexity and make it um, simple and easy and understand in a way that they can see the world and a place for them in it. I think that's really important. That's an aspiration I'll never reach, but that's what I try to do. Um, I am inspired by um, having some of the best friends in the world. I am really fortunate, um, family as well. Um, they're my uh, moral compass, you know, that, uh, trying to do right by them. And um, in terms of inspiration, I don't have children, but I have uh, nieces and nephews in my mm-hmm. the nieces and a, and a nephew in my family. Yeah. And I think that uh, young kids in particular, five, six, seven years old, uh, don't want to leave Chloe out, she's 11, sorry Chloe. Nicole and they're on 19 now. Yeah. But they uh, view the world with um, enough understanding about what's going on, yeah. but enough healthy skepticism and a sense of humor to ask why in a way that's just brilliant. Yeah. So I think surrounding yourself by uh, with kids at some point in time uh, is really important. I mean, the whole kind of ask seven wise or whatever it is mm-hmm. to understand a problem, it's really just following a five-year-old ground. Yeah, I love it. They don't come with any of the yeah. No, they don't biases. have discipline boundaries. They don't have any yeah biases. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. And I guess what was it? What was it like seeing you know your name over Tom's book? I mean, it must have been a a pretty cool moment. Yeah, you know, he he emailed me and said I, I want to mention you in, in my book, and I was like, wow, blown away. I thought maybe he would say back thank you in the beginning, and then we both happened to be in Australia at the same time, so we met for breakfast and he turned his computer around and he's like, well, this is how I rewrote the, one of the chapters in the book and I read through it and I just kept reading and he kept, you know, there were more and more mentions and I was like, in quotes and stuff, I was just... Mitchell CNN today, yeah, right? Blown away, blown away. He's just, he, it's hard to find people in the world who are not only that bright and good at communicating, but that generous. And I think his real superpower is his ability to listen because you can't figure out the world if you're just telling all the time. Mm-hmm. He spends an incredible amount of time listening and processing. That's that's a really unique skill. Yeah. And he referenced you at the Never Name Talk. <laughs> so I think everywhere he goes. I'm very, very, You're very, very on. lucky. Yeah. So Heather, I'd love to take some, some quick fire questions. Sure. sure. Um, I don't know if that'll be quick fire actually, but um, I had this I, I had some listeners send in some questions uh, that they they would love to ask. Um, and the first one uh, comes from Amar Madrudin, who clearly has studied your 2015 keynote in some detail. Um, and Amar's question is, do you see uh, the 99% of the population facing any additional challenges to the 1% uh, in getting ready uh, for this future of work economy that you talk so much about? They, they may have the actual advantage because what the, the, the sort of developed world has, has done is created this sort of pick an aspirational self, work towards it, and expect to be rewarded for being that aspirational self. Um, the developing world has not had that false promise, so they have the opportunity to think about it differently. Um, we do not live in a utopian society, not anywhere near it, so even if a lot of routine work is replaced right. by other actors, technology actors, you can fulfill the, that task more efficiently and, and more financially effectively. We still have a society, we have aging populations all over the place, 
Um, we are desperately in need of human connections. We have right. an isolation problem. So it really depends on how the world as you see it. And so the other 99% have, a, have a, or however you want to frame that, that I right. say he's talking about the developing world, yeah. have an opportunity to say, let's miss the trap the developed world fell into, yeah, just leap past it and say, what is it that we value that's uniquely human? What are the things the machine should do? What are the things the human should do? How do we prepare those humans, not only um, in terms of training and skills, but with mindsets and expectations to fulfill those roles? Right. I think it's really powerful. And if we think about um, communities for a second, I think one of the things we touched on at lunch was the kind of power of intergenerational mm -hmm. communities. You know? yeah. I think we had a pretty compelling you know, suite of thoughts around how there aren't a ton of institutions today that actually give us that yeah. generational connection. If you happen to live in a neighborhood with a strong community and you know your neighbors, you might have some intergenerational friendships there. You might have some from your family. If you belong to a church or another organization, you might have them there. Right. But we don't otherwise have them in our society. Our, our work environments have, have been sort of, they're not as social as they used to be. We're not as connected as we used to be. We don't have those intergenerational, and I think those intergenerational friendships are important. They're important for learning. They're important for perspective. But they're also important for just rejuvenating our, our own purpose. 100%. I mean, I see the intergenerational communities just like the developed world versus developing world. Yeah. You can see yeah. the, the pitfalls or the, the successes that people have had. Yeah. And you can put them into action. But it, it kind of keeps you empathetic, right? Yeah. If you have a crowdsourced perspective. Right. What we talked about today was part of the problem with this kind of tribe, tribalistic you know, force that we have going on is we don't know what it looks like for others. Right. We, we read about it through a medium. We right. don't rarely really see it for ourselves. Right. I mean, we often live in communities where we're connected only to people who are the same socioeconomic class or race or what have you. Right. I mean, I had told you the story that I, I knew when I was in business school that I was in an artificial environment that wasn't right for me and right. that was cutting me off from other dots I needed to connect. Right. So. I joined a bowling league, and I tried to do that. I can't do it right now because of my travel schedule. Is that put me in touch with people who are very different from me? Their backgrounds are different. They're, you know, I'd have to travel a few towns away to get to a league or whatever. But that was an important thing to do. I don't know how we do it with digital media platforms, and we have these intentional sort of fireside chats or conversations with people who think differently than us. But the more and more the algorithms filter the information that we see in terms of news or fake news. Mm -hmm or connections to people who think the exact same thing we do is that the, the farther and farther we're going to go apart. Yeah, I think one one event I, I really thought did a great job of that was, you know, last week, Chicago Ideas. Mm -hmm. So this idea of bringing, you know, all the people in Chicago, 77 neighborhoods and beyond, yeah. you know, for discourse around some pretty tough topics yeah. um, was a great example of how you can spark those conversations right. and create new relationships. and. I'm, I'm old-fashioned, maybe, but I think doing that over a, a good meal yep. or a good yep. drink, yep. right, or just a community where you feel safe yep. um, is a fantastic way to go. Yep. So, Heather, have you, have you got any gems of stories around community that maybe explain some of the points you made today? Yeah. I think as we were talking earlier about um, how we don't have these friendships or relationships with people who are different than us, we don't have these catalytic moments allow us to run into people we would never otherwise run into except for the way you and I met. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot to tell you back when we were talking about my first blog piece, which is where I started down this path, um, I Tom Friedman had come and spoken at a university I was working at, 
And then he uh, was doing a New York Times event in San Francisco. And I thought, you know, um, I get, he was an, I think it was an invitation only thing. And I got an invite or got a couple of invites. And my wife and I decided to go on vacation for a long weekend. And I said, you know what? This is when the collaborative economy was just starting to become everything. So it was Airbnb and Uber, and everybody was had this mania about it. I said, our whole weekend is going to be collaborative economy. Everything we do, as far as I can tell, or as far as I can figure out, is going to be collaborative economy. So we're only going to take Ubers. We're going to stay in an Airbnb, mm-hmm. do as many collaborative things as we want, as we can. So we signed up for our first Airbnb. We take an, uh, an Uber from the airport, and we get a notice saying, Airbnb is experimenting with dinners. So do you want to go to this dinner, which uh, the name of the dinner was called My Kitchen is My Runway. And it was a picture of a about six foot tall um, uh, Hispanic guy dressed as Julia Child in drag. And I thought, oh, God, yes, I do. That's awesome. (laughs) And it was like 20 bucks or something. I'm like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Go on afterwards if if it's terrible. Figure out some way to leave. So... um, my wife and I uh, take a cat, uh, take an Uber over to the to the air to the place to have dinner. Mm-hmm. We walk in, and it's um, uh, Ben and Mitch, or the two people's names who were housing it. Uh, ben was the cook, dressed as Julia Child, or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, there was a whole cast of characters in this collaborative house that they were all drag queens of some form or another, and they were telling us some of them were in drag, some were out of drag, but telling us all their stories. And then about. Uh, ten minutes later, a beautiful woman walks in, and she said, "My boyfriend's going to be here soon." And I turned to my wife and I said, "I have a feeling. I have a feeling that this is the pilot for Airbnb experiences, which is what it ended up being." And Brian Chesky walked in the door. Oh my god! The founder of Airbnb. <laughs> so we're sitting in this in this house. A um, couple people in drag, a lot of people out of drag. They didn't know who Brian Chesky was. That's amazing. They had just signed up for this thing. I knew who he was because he went to RISD. Yeah, uh, and I, he was young. He's younger than me, so we didn't go to Rizzi at the same time. But I knew he was. But I didn't want to go. Oh, you're Brian Chesky. Yeah. So one of the things he's famous for at Rizzi is Rizzi um, is is an art school. So uh-huh. it has a uh, hockey team, right? Um, called the Nads, and they were called the Nads so that everybody would scream, "Go Nads!" So I was very juvenile. <laughs> That's what Rizzi did. And so when he was there, um, the 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 people going to the game started to go down. And he said, "We need a mascot." So as a student, he created Scrody. Scrody. Yes, it okay. was a mascot that looks like a, a scrotum that okay. skates around on the <laughs> So I just started talking to him about it. I'm like, I said, I'm so glad you saved the Nads by creating Scrody. I just started that as the conversation. Then we started talking about RISD. Then we started talking about other things. We had a bunch of drinks. It was a, such a fun night. I'm still in touch with the two guys who hosted it. Wow. And um, Brian said that night, this is going to be the beginning of a whole bunch of things outside of housing that we want to try. Dinners is one of them. And I remember going back from that experience and thinking, I want to host a dinner. I want to meet some people that I don't know who may live in Boston. Um, The dinner thing has sort of fallen off to other experiences. And I travel way too much to do it, but I cook dinners all the time. So when we were talking about having the cocktail or having the experience that gets people to talk about other things, I mean, suddenly they were, you know, Two drag queens, one in drag, one out of drag. Brian Chesky, who was, you know, worth $10 billion, I think, at the time, his girlfriend, my wife, and me, just sitting down, having Mexican food, talking about life in every different direction, having loads of drinks and having a fantastic time. That's what it's all about, right? Yeah. And it's it's so easy to create. Yeah. Um, 
I had that. I think that's a wonderful story. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, I, I think that is the, the the pillar of community. I mean, we walked away from that. We were still going to be in San Francisco for the rest of the weekend, and the guys who hosted the party texted us, invited us to another party the other night. So we went out and saw them again at another party. We remained connected. Yeah, it's all it takes. Yeah, right to right. break the ice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, on to question two. Okay. Um, Sam McGinty, uh, who's a junior at the University of Notre Dame, uh, I think Sam just wrapped up a job offer. Congrats to Sam uh, with a fancy sports company in Boston. Uh-huh. Uh, he is asking, so Heather, I applied for my jobs this year, but didn't put my GPA on any of my resumes, and not one company asked for it. Uh-huh. And I think he applied to some of the top 10 companies, uh-huh. definitely some of the FANGs. That's very different from when I was in school all but a year ago. Um, do you think organizations are waking up to the fact that the GPA is everything? I've never had a GPA on my resume before. Maybe it wasn't good enough to put on my resume, I'm not sure. In fact, when I got my MBA, I never got my grades. I never picked up my grades. I just, if, if I was, there was a problem, I assume they'd let me know. I found that distracting. I found it made you feel good or bad in a way that wasn't helpful to learning. So I'm, I'm all for the GPA going away. <laughs> Wow. So there we go. Yeah. Sam, you heard it here first. Um, next question. Um, and this is from, as I said, one of my good friends, Osama Ayogu, uh, who's on the board of trustees at Duke. Um, first question, he has two. Um, Heather, as schools build new physical infrastructure, classrooms, living areas, diners, social spaces, why can, where can they be most intentional? to enable these spaces, to support new and collaborative learning styles, and allow people to adapt the existing spaces accordingly to the curriculum that they might be teaching? Um, I think that the spaces have to be as flexible as possible, translated as possible, and then think about all the different groups that could use them. So if you're thinking about them as just for your 18 to 24 year olds, it's obviously right. going to get limited, and at some point you're going to tear it down and build something new. Right. But if you're thinking about, um, can we do some executive learning here? Can we do some community learning here? Can we have community meetings here? Can we bring high school students here? What are all the different populations you can bring through that space? And it's almost like the best way to design a space is to have an empty room, because you need a roof over your head of some sort, and then watch how people use it, and then design the space through the use of it. I love that idea. So you can see where people naturally go. Yeah because they're going to try and form it to the the discussions that they have. That's fantastic. Um, Second question. Uh, Many universities have peripheral programs that encourage interdisciplinary and collaborative pedagogy um, so people can learn how to learn and also criticize. But these very rarely become part of the core curriculum uh, or actually instituted centrally, even if there's a a buy-in from the administration or deans. Uzo thinks and has found that the inhibiting factor is often faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you approach shifting pedagogy and culture from both a top-down and bottom-up perspective when it comes to engaging the academy? Uh, this is one I actually worked on. <laughs> so when well, I, there we go. I don't know if you guys have been in cahoots before the no, show. No, that was a pretty softball one. <laughs> <laughs> so when I worked, we need some tougher questions. Yeah, you need tougher questions. No, this, this is a good, good, good question though. In um, faculty often get blamed, and with some reason for in some instances, but uh, not. I think for the most part, is is, is it fair? 
So um, I worked at Philadelphia University, it's now Jefferson University. I was hired by the president to help them build the new college that was intentionally and explicitly interdisciplinary. Let's remember that disciplines are artificial barriers we created to codify knowledge in the little chunks that could be transferred. The way we have um, educated and uh, incentivized faculty is to highly, highly specialize. So they get tenure if they have peer-reviewed articles and you know all this. So we're asking them to go like this, and then we're suddenly asking them to go like this. So one of the things that we did at uh, Philly University is uh, with Jefferson uh, was that we uh, made um, part of the peer-review process and part of the incentivation process collaboration. So rather than just the peer-reviewed article, right. how many interdisciplinary classes did you create, teach, how many interdisciplinary articles did you write, how many interdisciplinary projects did you work on? So it really comes from the incentive because faculty behave in the way that we encourage them to behave. As anybody does, right? Right. So if you incentivize everybody to behave in one way right. and then ask them to behave in another, they're going to behave in the way you've incentivized them. Right. And I guess my final two questions, you right. can be very generous with your time. Sure. Uh, let's talk about a storytelling and narrative for a second. So I think some of the themes today that have really stuck out from our lunch conversation in this is all around identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all around lifelong learning, mm-hmm. developing and being comfortable with seeking out people who might disagree with you or, as you, Annie Duke would say, can kind of cover your blind spots. Yeah. What role do you, do you think, you know, story t- storytelling and, and narrative curation I can play in the future of the world. Do you see it as playing a kind of crucial role? Yes, because I think that as you sort of stitch together the portfolio of things that you do, yeah. which is really just learning exhaust, how you explain those things to yourself, to people you meet, right. to the next person who's going to add to your portfolio, right. is really takes storytelling. And it tells them something about you, why you care, what your, your why, your purpose, your passion, right. your powers, your abilities, how you manifest them, how they become evidence. So instead of it being, you know, time in a company and levels, it becomes, here are the evidence of the things that I've done. Here's why I've done it. The purpose and the passion come through. And the story is the way that the person understands it. Right. So get away from literally everything that we're taught to brag about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in today's society yeah um, final question in there. What, what what's next for you um, flying around the world putting oh. together these incredible tools today tomorrow the future yeah. what's next um, I think that uh, I would like to see you launch the media idea you were telling me about and I would honor, be honored to be a part of it so I think that your ideas about finding up-and-coming curators and finding people who are who are uh, the smart people in the world that interest me in the world that people don't know about and shining the heat and the light on those guys so that people in the world see them, I would love to be a part of it. you got a deal. <laughs> we'll make it happen. All right. Uh, guys, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, thank you so much, Heather, for your oh, time. Oh, for having me. Um, absolutely incredible insights. I'm so glad we made this happen. Yeah. You know, three years of email conversations, Skype calls, yeah. LinkedIn messages, iMessages. Um, yeah, both of us being in different parts of the world often. Often, yeah. yeah. I think this is really the, the first of many conversations, yeah, I'm hope sure. So. Hope so. Uh, but really, this is one I hope we, we look back on as before you were all over the New York Times bestselling list. So thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Final thing I will say, where can uh, people at home follow you, engage with you, read your work, 
What, what's best for that? Is it LinkedIn? Is it your website? Uh, LinkedIn's a good place. My network's open, so drop me a note. Say that you heard this and you want to talk about it. Because I get a lot of those, I get several of those just blank ones. So yeah. It's hard to, I think that's a problem with the web version. You know what I mean? That just sends it without giving you a note. And you should be able to hit a note. Yeah, yeah you should be able to hit a note. Uh, HeatherMcGowan.com yep. is a lot of information about me and my talks and articles. I'll post this on there as well. Fantastic. And then uh, Collaborations with Chris Shipley is yes. on um, either work-to-learn or future is learning. Both of them point to the same place. Awesome. Well, have the safe travels. Thank you. I hope the talk goes well tonight. Thank you. And uh, look forward to our next discussion with Chicago. Likewise. See you guys. Okay.